Don't ever underestimate the power of the spoken word. Words are funny little things, aren't they? It's just a combination of vowels and consonants pushed over air. Yet embedded in those words, you can find life or death. Don't ever underestimate the power of the spoken word. With words, a judge can issue a decree of guilt or innocence. With words, a doctor can tell you that you have a clean bill of health or a body full of disease. With words, a coach can build up his team or tear them down. With words, a parent can either praise the children or punish the children. With words, we can praise God and we can curse men. We can cheer for our favorite sports teams. We can yell at the idiot on the freeway. Don't ever underestimate the power of the spoken word. It has been reported in a Harvard research group that there are over 1,025,000 words in the English language. The average English speaker knows about 42,000 words. That same average English speaker utilizes about 20,000 words in an active day, active communication. In a separate study by the University of California, it was determined that women speak approximately 20,000 words a day, while men speak 7,000 words a day. I am resisting every urge and temptation inside of me to make some cute, snarky comment. But the question before us is this, how do you choose the words you say? You know thousands of them. You employ thousands of them on a regular basis, on a daily basis. There's probably a million other words that you may not even know or readily use. So how do you determine the words you speak? This morning we continue our study of the book of Colossians. We find ourselves in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. In this passage, I think that Paul gives us some insight regarding the words that we use and how we pray and what we say. Colossians chapter 4, let me begin reading at verse 2. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. If you've been with us for several weeks, you know that by now Paul has been teaching us that belief and behavior are inextricably tied together. What we say we believe ought to be revealed by how we behave. He spent the first two chapters speaking of our belief in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that belief, it impacts how we behave. So in chapter 3, verses 1 to 17... 
He tells us how we behave as individuals. We set our hearts and our minds on things above. We put to death everything in the earthly nature. We put off the old self. We put on the new self, taking off 11 grave clothes garments, putting on 11 grace clothes garments. We do this not once, but repeatedly. In verse 18, he begins to broaden the influence of the gospel in our life. Not only has Jesus saved us as individuals, but he also saved all of our relationships. So that because of our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, it leads us to merciful marriages. It leads us to have uh, powerful per, uh, parenting relationships. And it, and it leads us to have effective, efficient employment. When you and I come to our passage of chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, Paul says it also impacts the words that tumble from our lips. Because we believe in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus has not just redeemed you as an individual and redeemed all your relationships, but he's also redeemed every word that you speak. He begins by talking about how we choose the words that we say to God in prayer. So he says in our passage, devote yourselves to prayer. The word devote means to adhere to, to attach oneself to, to stick and stay like super glue. My question before you is this, to what do you devote yourself to these days? We devote ourselves to our goals and dreams, our desires. We devote ourselves uh, to our spouse, to our children, to our family. We devote ourselves to our hobbies, to our work. We devote ourselves to our pleasure. Many of you would make the argument, we devote ourselves to God and you'd be right. Here, Paul says, we devote ourselves to prayer. Jesus told us never to stop praying, never to give up on prayer. Paul says we are to pray without ceasing. I always struggle with that. I mean, how do you pray without ceasing? I'm not always in a position or a posture of prayer, so what does it mean to pray without ceasing? What does it look like to be devoted to prayer? I like what Warren Wearsby said when he said that, that prayer ought to be as normal to you as breathing. As air is to breathing, so prayer is to the life of the believer. If you stop breathing air, you'll stop living, literally. If you stop praying, you'll stop living spiritually. As air is to breathing, so prayer is to the, spirit, is to the spiritual man, the spiritual woman. So prayer ought to be as normal to us as breathing. Let me ask you two questions. How many times a day do you breathe? How many times a day do you pray? The doctors tell us that the average person breathes 23 times in a span of 24 hours. Did I say 23 times? 23,000 times. Some of y'all are doing the math thinking, how is that even possible? 23,000 times over a 24-hour period. You breathe on average 16 times a minute. You do the math, that's 23,000 times. And the vast majority of those times, you're not even thinking about breathing. Your body just does it intuitively. You just instinctively inhale and exhale. Until this very moment, you haven't really thought that much about breathing. Now, right now, you're thinking about breathing. You're thinking about inhaling and exhaling, and you think, how many times do I do that in a minute? And some of you are getting short of breath because you're just thinking about it too much. But the reality is, most of us, on average, about 16 times a minute, we breathe 23,000 times over a 24-hour period. And the vast majority of the time, we don't have to work at it. 
It's just innate. It's just part of who we are. How many times in a 24-hour day do you pray? I'll go out on a limb and I'll say probably less than 23,000 times. I don't know very many people who would pray 16 times a minute. We probably would say, you know what, I, I need to pray more than I do. But I'm so busy. I've got so many other things to do. I just, I just don't know how to, how to put more prayer into my regular schedule. Well, once again, Paul says that we need to devote ourselves to prayer. Really, we're devoting ourselves not to the discipline necessarily, but to the one to whom we pray. We're devoting ourselves to Christ. When I examine my own prayer life, uh, I realize there, there are a myriad of types of prayers in a regular day, in a regular work week. Sometimes my prayers consist of one word. It's the greatest name that I know, Jesus. Sometimes it's just a one-word prayer, Jesus. 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 Just simply stating the name of Jesus it puts a calm over my spirit. Sometimes my prayers are just one-word prayers. Sometimes my prayers are flare prayers. You know, the, just a one-phrase statement that you just kind of shoot up into the air. Lord, help me. Lord, have mercy. Lord, show me. Any of you ever pray flare prayers? And then sometimes in my prayer life, prayers are so oppressive that they drive me to my knees. I couldn't stand up if I wanted to. Sometimes when you pray, you go into your prayer closet, don't you? And you put your face to the carpet because you can't look up. What is so burdensome upon your heart, what is so heavy upon your spirit, you cast all your cares upon the one who cares so very much for you, and it drives you to your knees for moments, for minutes, maybe even for hours. You look at your prayer life, and there are times when you have a one-word prayer. Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's a flare prayer. Lord, help me. Maybe there are moments when it just drives you to your knees, and you can't look up, and you can't stand up, and you just pray. All of this seems to describe the life of the believer, does it not? That we are to devote ourselves to prayer. It is to be as normal in our routine as breathing. Sometimes we ought to pray and we're not even thinking about it. It just is so innate in who we are as a child of God. It is so intuitive in who we are that we find ourselves just routinely caught up in prayer and we didn't even know that we had started a prayer. This is what Warren Wiersbe means when he says that prayer is to be as normal as breathing. Paul says, I want you to devote yourselves to prayer. He then says, I want you to be watchful and thankful. To be watchful and thankful. What are we watching? I think we only have about three options. People, problems, and predicaments. That's about it. I mean, what we watch, what we observe, everything around us, it's people, it's problems, it's predicaments. And Paul says that we watch that, and on the backside of it, we are thankful for that. Now, what does that have to do with prayer? I think that when you pray, you need to be as specific as possible. You are specifically praying for the people, the problems, the predicaments that you are watching. And when you specifically pray for them, then you also give opportunity to specifically give God thankfulness when he responds to that person, that problem, and that predicament. Vague prayers lead to vague praise. 
But specific prayers lead to specific praise. And I think that when we come to choosing the words that we pray unto the Lord, I think that we need to be as specific as we possibly can. We don't just pray for those people being baptized. No, we we pray for Andy and Anna Reeves Barker, don't we? Lord, thank you for Andy and Anna Reeves. Thank you for those two sisters. Help them to grow in their faith and knowledge of Christ. Let them be godly gals all the days of their life. We're not just praising God for baptism. We're praising God for specific people that are being baptized. Because specific prayers lead to specific praise. It's not that we just say, Lord, be with the sick. I said that to the early service. I have no idea why that voice comes out of me. I mean, I really don't think you sound like that. I don't think you pray like that, but it just kind of, it just kind of springs out. You know, Lord, help us. Lord, help those who are sick. Don't be vague in those prayers. You don't say, Lord, help the sick. You say, Lord, help Francis Sims. Because when you're specific in your prayers for praying for Francis Sims, when God heals her, then you can give thanks for God's work in the life of Francis Sims. You don't just say, Lord, help those who are grieving. No, you don't say, Lord, help those who are grieving. You say, Lord, please be with Miss Marceline and Miss Marion, who just a few weeks ago lost Mr. Jack, husband and dad. When you pray specifically, you can give thanks specifically. I think that's why Paul says be watchful and thankful. With watchfulness, you are watching the people and and, and the problems and the predicaments that are around you. And specifically, you use words in prayer that lift them up unto the Lord. Why? So that you can specifically give thanks to God when he works in their lives. So Paul says, I want you to be watchful, and I want you to be thankful in your prayers. I think he's telling the church, be as specific as you can in the words you select in your prayers unto God. And then he also says, uh, pray for us. There's no problem for you to ask others, pray for me. There's no problem in you doing that. In fact, it's a pretty good idea. Paul does it. He asks the church, pray for us. But I do want you to notice what he asks them to pray for as they intercede for him. He says, pray that the Lord may open the door of our message. That's interesting, isn't it? Where is Paul when he writes this letter? He's in jail. He's incarcerated. He doesn't pray what I would pray. He doesn't pray maybe what you would pray. Lord, open the door of this jail cell. That's what I would pray. Lord, get me out of here. I don't want to be here. I'm not supposed to be here. I didn't do anything that would sufficiently land me here. Lord, open the door. And if you're going to open a door, why not that one right there so I can walk out of jail? He doesn't pray that. He doesn't pray about the bumps and bruises from the chains or the lashings or the whips. He doesn't pray about all of his ailments. He says, Lord, pray that you may give us 
a door of opportunity for the message. See, Paul has every intention of doing in that jail and outside that jail what landed him in that jail, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Because he was more enamored with being a faithful man than a free man. His preoccupation was not, get me out of here. His preoccupation was, Lord, help me to be faithful in here. So open the door of opportunity for the message. Oh boy, that really shapes how we ought to pray to God, doesn't it? Paul is saying, I want you to pray for me. And as you pray, I want you to pray for opportunity. See, Paul is a free man. His freedom is in Jesus Christ. He's, he is free even if he's incarcerated. He's free. He knows he's a free man. Ain't nothing anybody can do to him that would imprison him, spiritually speaking. So he says, Lord, please open the door of opportunity because I've got some cellmates over there. I've got some soldiers out there, and they need to hear the good news of the gospel. So church, I want you to pray, Paul says. I want you to pray that the Lord would open the door of opportunity. He also says, I want you to pray for the message of the mystery. What is the mystery he's talking about? It's the same one he's been talking about for four chapters. Here's the great mystery of the cosmos. God in you, the hope of glory. Help me to proclaim that mystery. And he says, help me to do it clearly, with clarity. Paul says, I'm not interested in winning an argument. I'm not interested in nailing your body to the proverbial wall. I'm not interested in just telling somebody uh, an earful or giving them my two cents worth. No, I want clarity. Help me to speak clearly. Every minister of the gospel that I know, every preacher of the good news that I know, every Christ follower of the Lord Jesus Christ wants more than anything else to be clear. Let me be clear, Paul says. Let me be clear so they can know that they're sinners and there is one Savior, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus came to die on the cross for their sins. He was buried on the third day. He was raised from the dead. And if we believe and trust in him and his sufficiency and his sovereignty, if we believe upon that, then the great mystery of the cosmos takes place. God in us, the hope of glory. So help me to be clear. I don't want to be foggy. I don't, I, I don't want people to be confused. Help me to be clear. Can I let you in on a little secret? Every Sunday, I pray for clarity. I want to be clear. I want you to walk out with a greater, clearer understanding of God's word, God's work, and God's ways in your life. If you walk out of here with a greater understanding of God's word, if you walk out of here with a greater comprehension of God's work, if you leave this place understanding a little bit more about God's ways in your life, then mission accomplished. That's why I'm here. That's why God has called me to do what I do. It's so with clarity, in the hopes of clarity, I can communicate to you something more about God's word and his work and his, and his ways in your life. Paul says, when you pray to God, be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to the one to whom you pray. I want you to adhere to it. I want you to stick to it. I want you to stick with it. I, I want it to be as normal as breathing. And Paul is telling the church, when you pray, be specific. 
Because vague prayers lead to vague praise, but specific prayers lead to specific praise. And let's pray for each other. And pray for each other that we will be clear in the gospel that has saved us and commissioned us to go out and tell others. How do you choose the words when you pray to God? You just be as specific as you possibly can. Because that gives you great opportunity to be thankful unto the Lord when he works in a miraculous way. Now Paul seamlessly transitions from how we pray to what we say to each other. You go in verses 5 and 6 and it would seem to me that he is transitioning uh, from the vertical to the horizontal. Now he does this on purpose. Uh, Before he speaks about how we speak to one another horizontally, he has already talked to us about how we speak to God vertically because how we speak to God vertically must impact and shape how we speak to one another that's on the horizontal plane. So if you got the vertical down, then you can get to the horizontal. If you know how you ought to pray, it helps you in what you ought to say to one another. So Paul says in in verse 5, Be wise in your actions towards outsiders. Be wise in the words that you use. Be wise in the words that you select in your interactions with outsiders. The Bible is clear that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, all he has to do is ask, James says, and God will give it freely. Have you ever met someone that you believe to be wise beyond her years? I would suggest and I would submit that the reason she's wise beyond her years is because she's asked for it. She's probably been subjected to scenarios where she needed wisdom and she knew she didn't have it, so she asked God for it and he supplied. That's what happens. You've ever met a man and you think to yourself, well, he's wise beyond his years and he's that way because he's been in some situations where he needed wisdom and he didn't have it in and of himself. So he asked God who gives it freely and God gave wisdom freely. Because if you lack wisdom in dealing with anybody, ask God. He promises to give it to you. God promises that anyone who comes to him asking for wisdom, believing that he will provide, he will do it. So be wise in your words. Be wise in your interaction with outsiders. Who are the outsiders? In the Bible, there are only two types of people, insiders and outsiders, those in Christ, those outside of Christ. The Bible speaks to them in different ways, children of light versus children of darkness, the wheat and the weeds uses a host of different things to describe different types of people, but all of people fall in one of two categories. Either they're in Christ or they're out of Christ. Paul says, be very wise in your words, in your dealings, in your interactions with those on the outside. Now, what, what is he saying? Is he saying that we can say whatever we want to to the people on the inside, It doesn't matter. I mean, if they are insiders, they are in Christ, then Katie, bar the door. You say whatever you want to. No, he's not saying that. Why would he say be wise 
in your interaction towards outsiders. The one word reason, evangelism. In the hopes that you will, that you will win some. So you ask for wisdom in how you speak to other people in the hopes that the gospel will go forward and the lost will be saved. Now the lost are saved not because of your wisdom. The lost are saved not because of your winsomeness. The lost are saved because the Spirit of God opens their eyes unto his salvation. But I do, more, I do know more people who have come to Christ through words of wisdom versus words of foolishness. So Paul just says, in your interaction with others, be wise in your words. Be wise in the words that you speak. Communication experts tell us that meaning is communicated only 7% by the words that we use. The other 93% of meaning is communicated by nonverbals. So it is important the words that we say. But what's even more important is how we say what we say. So the words that we select, that's important. But how we communicate them is even more important. Nonverbal would include eye contact, facial gestures, the inflection of your voice, the tone, the pitch, the punch, the pace of your voice. It would also include your hand gestures, your body language, all those, all those nonverbals. Because humans are so resourceful. You, you, are, you are so brilliant. You really are. Because when it comes to communication, say, for example, what we're doing right now, one to many, I am constantly encoding meaning into the message that I'm giving to you. And you are constantly not only processing my words, but you're decoding my nonverbals. So that you are measuring me up every single week. Did you realize that when you come to church, we do a dance every week? You may not have known it, but I dance with you every week. You dance with me every week. Hopefully, I take the lead. And I react off your response. And we dance. We dance through the scripture every single week. I am encoding meaning into the message. You are decoding the meaning of the message that I'm encoding. The problem comes when what I encode is not properly decoded by you. Or maybe you decode something that I did not mean to encode in the message. Whenever there is a distinction between the encoding and the decoding, there's friction in the conversation. Oh, but you know that constantly you are reading messages and messengers. Constantly you're doing that. Not just at church, but at home, in every conversation with your spouse and your children, at work, with conversations with coworkers and your supervisors, on the ball field, conversations with umpires and coaches and players. You're constantly encoding and decoding, even in the shopping experience, even at the mall, at the grocery store, at the gas station. Can you believe gas is so expensive, but need I digress? I mean, in all these things, we are encoding messages, we are decoding messages. Because we, we encode with nonverbals, and it reveals 
the pathos and the ethos. You hear my words, which communicate the logos, the words. But the pathos is the emotion, the passion behind it. The ethos is the character of the one who's delivering the message. And every week, you're evaluating whether I'm believable or not. Every week, we do a dance. Every week, we go through the scripture. Every week, I'm encoding messages, hoping that you're decoding in the proper way. Communication experts say that what you say is important, but how you say what you say is even more important. This is true in every conversation, whether it's one to many, like we do here, whether it's one to some, maybe a small group Bible study, or one to one, a conversation with a spouse, a coworker, a child. There's this constant verbal and nonverbal. There's this constant encoding and decoding. We've all done the uh, silly, extravagant uh, little exercise where a person is trying to communicate with you like I am right now, and the person stands before you like this with a furled frow on his brow, and he says, I want you to know I love you. And I also want you to know that it's really good to see you. I'm really glad you're here. I always can't wait to look you in the eye. You're very, very, very important to me. Right? I mean, the little laughter is, it tells me that you're decoding what was encoded. Because you heard the words that I said, but the nonverbals didn't measure up. Now that's, that's a little extravagant. That's, that's obvious, right? But we do that all the time. Paul says in order to effectively communicate with others, whether the others are outsiders or insiders, you've got to be wise. If you lack wisdom, all you have to do is ask, and God will give it freely. He also says in your conversation with others, let your conversation be full of grace and seasoned with salt. What a powerful imagery. What's your conversation to be full of grace? Our conversations are full of something. But are they full of grace? Full of grace. Grace is an undeserved gift. It's kindness, forgiveness, tenderness. That's not deserved. So if you sit there and you say, hey, pastor, um, I know that my conversation is to be full of grace, but you don't know what that person said to me. You don't know how she mistreated me. And you don't know that that individual doesn't deserve. Let me stop you right there. I'll give you all of that. You're right. I don't know what the other person said to you. I don't know what she did to you. I am quite confident that what he said, what she said, what he did, what she did, it was very hurtful and it was very harmful. I'll give you all of that. And I wasn't there to hear a word of it, but I believe you. I'll take your side for it. I believe that what you're telling me is the truth. Pastor, you weren't there. You don't know what was said. You don't know what they did. Right. I'll even give you 
they don't deserve it. I want you to hear that. I'm a preacher of the gospel on a Sunday morning telling a crowd that the people who have wronged you, they don't deserve your fill-in-the-blank kindness, forgiveness, and grace. They don't deserve it. Right now you're saying, yes, finally, a sermon I can resonate with, a sermon that really I can take home, really I can live out. Thank you. After seven plus years, you finally, pastor, preached a sermon that I can really absorb and I can really get. I'm with you. They don't deserve it. But the word grace, the word grace implies it's a gift undeserved. They don't deserve your kindness. But because God has been gracious to you, by his grace, you're kind to them. They don't deserve your forgiveness. But by God's grace, he's forgiven you. And by his grace, he'll help you forgive them. They don't deserve my tenderness and my care and my compassion. You're right, they don't. But God, by his grace, has been tender and kind and compassionate towards you, right? And so by his grace, he'll help you be compassionate to others. Your conversation is full of grace because grace is an undeserved gift. Isn't that salvation? You don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve salvation. We deserve to be eternally separated from God in a very real place called hell. That's what we deserve because of our indiscretion and our disobedience. But in God's grace, he gives us forgiveness. Grace. It's amazing. It saved a wretch like me. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. It's a beautiful word. And our conversations apparently have to be full of that. It has to be full of grace. Even when they don't deserve it, especially when they don't deserve it. Even when you don't want to, especially when you don't want to. Our conversations with insiders, outsiders, people we know, people we don't know, people we love, people we don't really like that much, everybody has full of grace. Seasoned with salt. Salt was a precious commodity in the first century. In fact, outside the sun in the sky, salt was believed to be the second most precious commodity known to man. Many times Roman soldiers were paid in salt. If you've ever heard the expression, he's worth his salt, that's where it comes from. Because the Roman government would pay Roman soldiers in salt. Those Roman soldiers saw the salt as more valuable than gold or silver. Because salt was a precious commodity. In the first century, there were about three primary uses for salt. One was the restriction of contamination of food. You put salt on the food and it would preserve longer. Also, you put a little bit of salt on the meal and it made it taste better. But the third purpose was medicinal. You could put salt in a wound and it could heal that scratch, that cut, that open sore. So salt had a plethora of usages. And so it was very valuable. So a Roman soldier that was worth his salt had a lot of salt that was given to him as compensation. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. What do you mean by that? I think Jesus meant all three of those things put together in one. I think he meant 
that as followers of Jesus, we are to constrict the contamination of our culture. And will you agree with me that our culture is deteriorating at a rapid rate? It would almost appear as if we didn't exist. By our mere presence in community, by our mere presence as Christians in the culture, we ought to be people that preserve the Christian value. We ought to be people that restrict the contamination and the deterioration of our culture. As I look around and I see how quickly everything is going south, I see that as an indictment against me, an indictment against you. Maybe we haven't been as salty as we needed to be in the sense of preserving the value of Christ in our culture. Oh, but when Jesus says you're to be salt, I think he also means that we're supposed to savor life. We're supposed to make life better by our mere existence. And there are times that we are to be medicinal. We are to be helpful. Yeah, salt can sting sometimes. You ever poured salt in an open wound? You know when that wound has some salt on it, it burns, it hurts, it's agitated. But at the end of the day, it just might be healed. So we as Christians, we are to be medicinal in our approach to culture. We are to savor life, making life better, not only for ourselves, but for others around us. And we are to preserve the core values of who God is and who we are as his people. By our mere presence in society, Jesus says we ought to do this. When you walk into the room, you ought to lift the temperature of the room. When you walk into the room, you ought to lift the countenance of the people in the room so that they are not looking to you, but Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you walk into a room, do you savor the life or do you suck out the life that's in the room? Jesus said we're to be the salt of the earth. Here, Paul says, our conversation is to be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Don't miss the comparison. Conversation is full of grace, seasoned with some salt. For far too many of us, our conversation is full of salt and seasoned with a little bit of grace. Because we think we got to put somebody in their place. We think we got to fire off a email. We think we got to make a post that's really going to nail somebody. We think we need to really give them a what for and an ear for. Earful. We need to really give it to them so that they'll know because our conversation is full of salt and we're going to season it with, Lord bless you. Season it with a little bit of grace. Paul says, no, no, no. Our conversation is full of grace and seasoned sprinkled with some salt. Why? So that we will know how to answer everyone. See, we, we've got to choose our words wisely so that we will know how to answer everyone. That's not just the outsiders, that's also the insiders. Everyone includes everyone so that we know how to answer everyone. Peter, the great apostle, says, you need to be prepared 
to give an answer to everyone and anyone who asks you about the hope that you profess. You need to be ready to give an answer. And that answer needs to be full of grace and it's seasoned with salt. Don't invert that. Full of salt, seasoned with grace. No, no. Full of grace, seasoned with salt. Paul is telling the church, listen, Christ, because he's sovereign, he not only has redeemed you and redeemed your relationships, now he's redeeming every word that you speak. Every word that you pray unto God, every word that you say one to another. How do you choose the words you speak? My encouragement, choose them carefully and Christologically. Choose them carefully with wisdom. And choose them with Christ in mind. So that you can say with me, Lord, help me. Lord, I need you to be above me and beneath me. Jesus, I need you in front of me and behind me. I need you to the right of me and the left of me. Jesus, I need you inside of me and surrounding me. Jesus, I need you to think with my mind. Jesus, I need you to feel with my heart. Jesus, I need you to speak with my lips. The psalmist says and the proverb writer says that blessed is the one who puts a guard over his mouth. He who guards his lips guards his life so be careful little mouth what you say be careful because words matter don't ever underestimate the value and the power of words words that you speak to God in prayer words that you speak to others in everyday conversation you and I have at our capacity over a million English words to choose from. If some of y'all are bilingual, you got even more than that. But we've got at least a million words in the English vocabulary to choose from. We speak thousands of words every day. We know thousands more. How do we choose the words we speak? I'll go ahead and tell you that This morning, this sermon, I've already preached 3,000 words and I did it twice. That's 6,000 words. If I only speak uh, 7,000 words, I only got another 1,000 to go today before I hit my quota. How do you choose the words that you speak? Do it carefully with wisdom. Do it Christologically with Christ setting on your mouth. May God help us, for we believe in the sovereignty and the sufficiency of Christ. And that belief ought to impact everything we say and even how we say it. As we devote ourselves to prayer and speak specifically to God in prayer and speak with great wisdom to one another. May God Help us. I said a moment ago, and I'm going to finish it, I'm going to close it with this. What you say vertically impacts what you say horizontally. So if if, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, then it really matters little for you to 
try to be wise in the words you speak to others. So if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, can I give you seven words today that will change your destiny? Seven words. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That statement was spoken by Christ in a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector who went to the temple. The Pharisee prayed about himself or to himself. The tax collector looked down, beat his chest, could not even lift his gaze to heaven, and he simply said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, that man, not the Pharisee, went home justified before the Lord. Seven words that changed a man's destiny. If it happened for him, it can happen for you. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, today can be the day of your salvation. If you are here and you are a believer, you've already trusted Jesus, then let that relationship with Christ impact and influence the words you speak horizontally with everybody else in your sphere of influence. And if you struggle with that, maybe you need to come this morning and pray here at the altar and say, Lord, help me. Maybe the prayer will drive you to your knees just for a few moments. Maybe you need to pray for yourself and for the language that you speak. Maybe you need to pray for the words that you select to say. Maybe you need to pray for your spouse. Maybe you pray for your family members. Maybe you need to pray for coworkers and friends. All right, whatever it is that God is leading you to do in this very moment, friends, in this moment, won't you respond to him in obedience? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Let us say enough, not too much, not too little, but help us to speak as you speak to us. Help us to listen as you impart to us the word of life. In Jesus' name we pray.